Lecture, Mohandas Gandhi, Part 2. Gandhi and the Hindu-Muslim Conflict Much of Gandhi's political activity in India involved the Indian National Congress, a body of representatives tolerated by the British rulers. It did not have official lawmaking power. That was in the hands of the British Viceroy, so it was a sort of Indian debating society. But it became the leading organization for independence because it had the loyalty of so many Indians. The INC often supported Gandhi's campaigns, in part because he, has, he was the most influential person in India, beloved by the poor masses. The INC needed his integrative power. But Gandhi was often disappointed with the INC leaders. He viewed Satyagraha campaigns like the Salt Satyagraha, as a way to purify Indians, teach them nonviolence and the constructive program so they could free themselves. Gandhi thought that the INC was less interested in nonviolence on principle, Satyagraha, and more interested in using non-cooperation because they couldn't figure out what else to do. This was nonviolence as a last resort, rather than nonviolence as a way of life. Gandhi called it nonviolence of the weak. An example of nonviolence of the weak would be someone choosing a nonviolence approach because he didn't have a gun, rather than choosing nonviolence because he didn't want to hurt someone. The assumption on Gandhi's part is that principled nonviolence takes more moral strength and courage than does violence. Another issue for Gandhi and the INC was the Hindu-Muslim divide. The Indian population in 1940 included 250 million Hindus, 90 million Muslims, 10 million Christians, 5 million Sheikhs, and people from many other religions. Hindus dominated the INC. Muslims organized in the All India, All India Muslim League. As British officials discussed ending colonial rule in India, the INC and Muslim League jockeyed for power and influence in post-colonial India. Gandhi had worked with Muslims in South Africa and in India, he encouraged Hindu politicians to make concessions to Muslims so that Muslims wouldn't feel intimidated by the Hindu majority. The religious divide ran deep. Some Muslims simply didn't trust Gandhi's Satyagraha because it seemed very Hindu. Some Hindus hated Gandhi because he was too friendly with Muslims. Gandhi was caught in the middle, trying to promote Hindu-Muslim unity. By the way, Gandhi was against trying to convert people to other religions. He argued that a person should encourage Muslims to be the best Muslims they could be, encourage Hindus to be the best Hindus they could be, and so on, including Sheikhs, Jains, and Christians. 
Gandhi understood that all the major religions have messages of peace and love, which are often twisted into messages of hate and violence. Quit India. In the 1930s, the British Parliament seemed to be moving toward allowing Indian independence. But then Hitler and his German armies violently conquered most of Europe, 1939-40, and then threatened to invade Great Britain. In 1941-2, Japanese armies began taking over British colonies in Southeast Asia, Burma, Malaysia. This was World War II, 1945. British officials decided they needed to continue ruling India rather than allow independence, as they needed Indian soldiers, taxes, and military bases to defend their empire. And the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, a racist psychopath, couldn't stand the thought of giving in to Indian demands. In 1942, in the middle of the war, Gandhi and the INC called for the British to quit India. Gandhi said Indians could defend themselves if Japanese forces invaded, and called for creation of a Shanti Sena, nonviolent army, to protect India's borders. He knew his quit India satyagraha with civil disobedience and labor strikes and boycotts of British goods might lead to outbreaks of rioting by undisciplined protesters. It did. But he thought that was better than continued submission to British rule. The British arrested Gandhi and INC leaders right away, and also arrested 60,000 Indian protesters. Not a good way, threat force, to maintain Indian loyalty to the British army. In 1943, the Viceroy insisted that Gandhi and the INC leaders in prison publicly take responsibility and apologize for the violent riots that had taken place. The Viceroy was blaming the rioting protesters, direct violence, while ignoring the violence built into the British colonial system, structural and cultural violence. In protest, Gandhi took a 21-day fast, only water and fruit juice for three weeks. In India, fasting, not eating for extended periods, can be a religious act of purification, cleansing body and mind, penance, self-punishment, and sacrifice. Fasting can also be a way to seek greater connection to a higher power, like a vision quest. Gandhi used fasting as purification before a satyagraha and penance after his followers became violent. He also used it as a political tool, leveraging his popularity and soul power, integrative power. When people were being violent, he would announce he was fasting until the violence ended. He would say, If you choose violence, I will be the one to suffer. 
In prison, he would announce that he would fast until his jailers granted his demands. In such a case, he was saying he would allow himself to die until he got his way. And the British sometimes gave in, as they didn't want the masses to blame them for Gandhi's death. Independence In 1945, the end of World War II brought significant changes. During the war, some Indian soldiers had sided with the Japanese, and the British officials were now putting them on trial. But people in India, including many in the military, understood that the soldiers went against Great Britain because they wanted Indian independence. Indians responded to the trials with massive anti-British demonstrations and riots. The British army was losing control of Indian soldiers and, with the war over, didn't need them anymore. Better just to get out. Also, a new government in Great Britain, with Churchill out of power, was more open to Indian independence. Indians were now making their own textiles, spinning. So the British economy was no longer based on Indian markets. Ruling India was expensive, with little benefit, and the post-war British government didn't have much money. Some historians point to all of this and say the British left India for political and economic reasons, meaning it had nothing to do with Gandhi and non-violence. But it was Gandhi's Salt Satyagraha, 1930, which had popularized the independence movement, and his Quit India Satyagraha, 1942, had strengthened the movement. Gandhi had inspired non-cooperation, which made India more a problem than a benefit for the British Empire. You might compare that to British colonists in North America in the 1770s, who used a tea boycott instead of salt disobedience and textile boycott to inspire anti-British attitudes. Those rebel colonists ultimately turned to warfare to gain political independence. In 1946, British officials offered a plan for Indian independence. They said the Indian Assembly, the new legislature, would be divided into three voting areas. The West, where Muslims were majority, the center, where Hindus were majority, and the East, where the Hindu-Muslim conflict was most intense. The British, it seems, were playing the Muslims against the Hindus, trying to maintain influence in the region by aligning with the Muslim minority, which had supported the British war effort. And many Muslims went along with the British plan for dividing India, fearing that a Hindu-majority government would work against them. To summarize a complicated situation, Gandhi and the INC wanted Indian unity, the Muslim League wanted India partitioned into two countries, India for Hindus, Pakistan for Muslims, and British officials, rather than leaving and minding their own business, were encouraging Muslim-Hindu distrust.
In August 1946, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the head of the All India Muslim League, called for a Muslim Day of Action. He wanted Muslims to participate in strikes, boycotts, and protest marches in support of dividing India. That seems legitimate, except Muslims and Hindus began slaughtering each other in a cycle of fear, hatred, and revenge that lasted for almost two years. The British now wanted out quickly and granted independence in August 1947. Indian politicians agreed on separate countries, India and Pakistan. Later, East and West Pakistan became the separate countries of Bangladesh and Pakistan. There was a mass migration, five to six million people, as Muslims fled Hindu-majority areas to get to Muslim-majority areas, and vice versa. One million died in the massacres. Like Gandhi had warned in his first book, Hind Swaraj, the Indians were acting like the British imperialists rather than creating a superior society based on cooperation and nonviolence. Gandhi's Final Years The British released Gandhi from prison in 1944. He was 75 years old, had a severe case of malaria. His doctor said his public career was over. Muslim politicians no longer listened to him, and his fellow Hindu politicians often ignored him too. Still, in 1946, Gandhi worked to stop the massacres. He moved to Bengal, a majority Muslim region, where Muslims had robbed and murdered Hindus and forced them to convert to Islam. For seven weeks, with a police escort, he walked from one Muslim village to the next, trying to end the hostility. He called for Hindu refugees to return home and called for Muslims to protect them. Eventually, due to Muslim hostility, he left. In 1947, he moved to Calcutta, a large city with a Hindu majority. He and a Muslim leader moved into an abandoned Muslim home and the city calmed. Hindus and Muslims publicly embraced, visited each other's temples, and walked freely in the streets. But it didn't last. When the violence restarted, Gandhi announced that he would fast until it ended. Soon, the killing stopped. Religious leaders came to his house and promised to prevent another outbreak. The Viceroy's assistant reported, hardened press correspondents report they have seen nothing comparable with this demonstration of mass influence. Viceroy Mountbatten's estimate is that Gandhi had achieved by moral persuasion what four army divisions would have been hard-pressed to accomplish by force. This is an example of how integrative power bringing people together is more powerful than threat power, which drives people apart.
Here is an eyewitness account by Horace Alexander. Where was Mahatma Gandhi on Ind Indian Independence Day? I was with him on that day, so I can tell the story, and it is worth telling. For on that day, Gandhi brought peace to the city of Calcutta and to the whole of Bengal, where Hindus and Muslims had been killing one another almost daily for over a year. Having been a teacher at a Quaker college in England, in the mid-1920s, I spent a sabbatical year in India, where I received many introductions from a remarkable Englishman named C.F. Andrews, who had gone from India to South Africa to help Gandhi in his struggle to assert the rights of the Indian. My visit ended with a week at Gandhi's ashram. Two years later, Gandhi came to London to take part in a conference on the future government of India, and I spent two days a week trying to be useful to him and his colleagues. In 1942, I traveled to India with a section of the Friends Ambulance Unit to help Calcutta and other cities prepare for possible Japanese air raids. Happily, there were few, but a disastrous famine struck Bengal, and there was plenty of work to do. At the end of the war, the new Secretary of State for India, Frederick Pethick Lawrence, made it easy for me to return to India and to help convince the Indian leaders that the British government was determined to leave India as soon as terms could be worked out. Gandhi and other Indian leaders welcomed us and made our work easy. We knew that the day of Indian freedom was to be 15th August, 1947. A few weeks earlier, Gandhi had written, asking me when I was coming to India. I replied that I should like to be with him on Independence Day, wherever he was. He said he expected to be in Bihar until a few days before the 15th, after when he was planning to go east to East Bengal. He hoped that I would join him in Bihar and then travel with him. Gandhi wanted to be in these places during independence because of the severe communal strife that had overtaken these areas in recent months. East Bengal, later Bangladesh, was home to more Muslims than Hindus, and was to be partitioned as the eastern wing of Pakistan. I joined Gandhi in Bihar, and we traveled together in Kal to Calcutta where he was staying for a couple of nights in the ashram of one of his fellow workers. I went to my Indian home, promising to meet Gandhi and his family on the 14th, in time to go on to East Bengal. But a few hours later, news came that our plans were changed. Leading Calcutta Muslims had begged Gandhi to stay in the city to help bring peace. They argued that peace in Calcutta would mean peace throughout Bengal, both in the west, which was still part of India, and in the east, now to be part of Pakistan. Gandhi was not easily convinced. 
He had pledged to stand by the Hindus of East Bengal on the day of partition. He could not go back on that promise unless he had full assurance that the Muslim leaders in East Bengal would protect the Hindus. But Gandhi knew the names of the men who could give this assurance, and with time very short, they did so, meaning we could stay in Calcutta. In an attempt to reconcile Calcutta's Hindus and Muslims, Gandhi invited Shaheed Surawadi, a Calcutta Muslim leader, to join him. Surawadi had been chief minister of Bengal and a sharp critic of Gandhi, whom he had described as that old fraud. A deserted Muslim house was found for the two men in a section of the city called Beligat. On the afternoon of 13th August, I was driven there by an Indian friend, but when we arrived, we were met by a crowd of shouting young Hindu men. When we tried to pacify them by explaining that I was a friend of Gandhi, they shouted, Gandhi, go back. Finally, some of the men came into the house and began to talk with Gandhi. The details of such a talk can be imagined. The young Hindus had been preparing for this day when they might have a purely Hindu India and when the Muslims would go to Pakistan. An eager young Hindu congressman had assured me a few days before that he thought it likely that there would be heavy slaughter of Muslims and Hindus immediately after freedom. But Gandhi hoped for something better. He told the young men that this was no way to start India on her life of independence. They should see that India was a land of tolerance and generosity. He sent them home to think it all over. Eventually, the men offered to support him in his efforts for peace, so long as he remained in Kolkata. The next evening, many assembled for Gandhi's regular prayers. Towards the end of the prayer time, some of the young Hindu men realized that Surawadi was not present and assumed rightly that he was in the house, so they came shouting for his blood. The prayers ended, and Gandhi went to the windows, threw open the shutters, and began talking in a low voice to the young men outside. He upbraided them for showing hostility to Surawardi. Whatever they thought of his past, he had now agreed to join the effort to bring peace. Then he brought Surawardi forward and stood with one hand over his shoulder. The critical moment came with a young man shouted at Surawardi, Do you accept the blame of the great Calcutta killing of last year? In August 1946, Calcutta had erupted into communal rioting that left at least 4,000 dead, mainly Hindus. Yes, replied Surawardi, I do accept that responsibility. I am ashamed of it. That, said Gandhi to me a few minutes later, was the critical moment. There is nothing more effective than public confession for clearing the atmosphere. In that moment, 
he won them over. While Surawardi was speaking, a, pol- a policeman came with news that in another part of the city, Muslims had joined Hindus across one of the invisible but potent barriers to put up the Indian national flag. The crowd outside Gandhi's house cheered this announcement. Earlier in the day, Gandhi had told me how he intended to spend Independence Day. He said nothing about the division of the country into India and Pakistan, nor did he suggest that the independence was unreal. But he was concerned that the people of India should not turn the day into mere jollification. Those who were with him at that moment would join him in prayer and fasting. At every decisive moment in national life, the appropriate thing was to turn first to God and to pray for the courage and wisdom to continue in the paths of justice and right action. Fasting was also appropriate as a reminder that the semi-starved millions in the villages could not celebrate by eating more food on that day. Fasting was a reminder that the primary purpose of freedom from foreign rule was to overcome India's vast poverty. The next morning, we started prayers punctually at 3 a.m. Some local schoolgirls came to greet the Mahatma with songs of freedom composed by their great Bengali poet, Rabindranath Tagore. When they found that we were all chanting prayers, they joined us, then took a blessing from the Mahatma and departed. Later, we all sang to the dawn of freedom. Then we all settled to our various jobs as if it were any other day, and we wondered what was happening in the city. Were the young Hindus out slaughtering the Muslims? Or were they all fraternizing together? I suppose it was about three o'clock when some of my friends from the service unit called me. You must not sit here all day. Come and see. They took me, and I saw that the miracle had happened. After a year of darkness, suddenly the sun was shining again. The whole city was intoxicated. With joy, it was Calcutta on the 15th of August, 1947. 35 years later, as I think of that day, I am ready to shed tears of joy and wonder. Everyone spoke of the miracle of Calcutta, and the East Bengal leaders had done their part too. All Bengal celebrated in peace. Harmony prevailed. Gandhi insisted that there had been no miracle. He knew that not all the political groupings active in Bengal had been involved. The absent ones might yet be heard from. For a week or so, peace prevailed. Then the blows struck. Dissatisfied young members of the Hindu nationalist group, Mahasva, manufactured an incident, and some of them attacked Gandhi's camp. Gandhi began a fast. The leaders of the Mahasabha 
took a strong line against their young members, and the Hindu public gave no support to the violence. This time, all the important party leaders met together and resolved that they would act together to see that the goodwill that Gandhi's presence in Bengal had brought should remain. Whether it is right to speak of the charge or speak of the change that came upon Calcutta on the morning of 15th of August, 1947, as a miracle, is a moot point. It was certainly an unforgettable event to those who experienced it. There can also be varying opinions about the extent to which it was due to Gandhi. But it is difficult to believe that the year of mutual hatred and distrust between the two great religious communities of Calcutta would so suddenly have turned to goodwill and trust without the example of the extraordinary pact of friendship made by Mahatma Gandhi with his bitter critic Shahid Surawardi. A few months later, Gandhi went to Delhi, the capital of India, where the Hindu-Muslim violence continued. In January 1948, he announced that he would fast until real peace was achieved. It took six days for the killing to stop. Here is the story as told by Ramachandra Guha in Gandhi, The Years That Changed the World, 1914 to 1948. On 12th January, Gandhi informed his prayer meeting that he was commencing a fast the next day. The recent riots had been contained by police and military action, but there was yet a storm within the breast. It may burst forth any day. So he had decided to go on a fast, which would end when he was satisfied that there is a reunion of hearts and all communities brought about without any outside pressure, but from an awakened sense of duty. On the evening of 14th January, a batch of angry men arrived on bicycles at Birla House and raised what were described as communal and anti-Gandhi slogans. Inside the house, speaking with Gandhi, were Patel Azad and Nehru. When the trio came out and heard the demonstrators say, Let Gandhi die, Nehru shouted, How dare you say that? Come and kill me first. At this, the demonstrators dispersed, but no sooner had Nehru's car sped away than they reassembled. One of Gandhi's doctors, Jivra Mehta, tried to reason with them. They told him that the slogans were on behalf of the refugees who needed food, homes, clothes, and jobs. At the prayer meeting that day, Gandhi spoke of reports of attacks on sheikhs and Hindus in Pakistan. If they ceased, they would have a beneficial effect on India. He then turned to his present ordeal. They tell me I am mad, he said, and have a habit of going on fast on the slightest pretext, but I am made that way. When he was a boy growing up in Kathiawar, he had a dream that if the Hindus, Sheikhs, Parsis, Christians, and Muslims 
could live in amity, not only in Raksha, but in the whole of India, they would have a very happy life. If the dream could be realized even now when I am an old man on the verge of death, my heart would dance. On the 15th, the third day of Gandhi's fast, an American writer visiting India went to see him at Birla House. He saw him lying on a cot in the porch. On the 15th, the third day of Gandhi's fast, an American writer visiting India went to see him at Birla House. He saw him lying on a cot in the porch. Gandhi reported this writer to his wife in New York was asleep, lying on his side in an embryo position. He was completely covered in a kadar cloth, including his head and framing his face, an old man's face and not attractive. In his sleep, he seemed to have lost control, and it showed what he perhaps was feeling, suffering, intense suffering. Somehow, we would never think of Gandhi fasting as a terrible physical experience. We think of it as a political maneuver, a strike, a gesture. But here it was in human terms, a process. Here was a 79-year-old man deliberately killing himself in the most difficult and excruciating way. On Saturday the 17th, Gandhi entered the fifth day of his fast. His doctors issued a bulletin saying he was definitely weaker and has begun to feel heavy in the head. Besides, the kidneys are not functioning well. Meeting Maulana Azad in the morning, Gandhi laid down seven conditions for breaking his fast. These were, one, the annual fair, the Urs, at the Kawaha Bhaktiyar Shrine at Mirali, due in nine days' time, should take place peacefully. 2. The hundred-odd mosques in Delhi converted into homes and temples should be restored to their original uses. 3. Muslims should be allowed to move freely around Old Delhi. 4. Non-Muslims should not object to Delhi Muslims returning to their homes from Pakistan. 5. Muslims should be allowed to travel without danger in trains. 6. There should be no economic boycott of Muslims. 7. Accommodation of Hindu refugees in Muslim areas should be done with the consent of those already in these localities. Gandhi's influence was finally permeating across the city of Delhi, slowly but surely. Two lakh people, 200,000 people, signed a peace pledge, which read, We the Hindu, Sheikh, Christian, and other citizens of Delhi declare solemnly our conviction that Muslim citizens of the Indian Union should be as free as the rest of us to live in Delhi, in peace and security, and with self-respect, and to work for the good and well-being of the Indian Union. On the 17th evening, Gandhi somehow summoned the strength to speak at his prayer meeting. He thanked all those who had written or wired their good wishes, many from Pakistan. 
but he insisted that his fast was not a political move in any sense of the term. It is in obedience to the preemptory call of conscience and duty. On the morning of the 18th of January, Hindu, Muslim, and Sheikh leaders met at Rahendra Prasad's house. Here they signed a pledge assuring Gandhi that the seven conditions he had stipulated would be fully met. The Urs would be held at Miralia as usual. Muslims would be able to move freely all across Delhi. Mosques taken away from Muslims would be returned to them, and so on. They all then trooped over to Birla House to present the undertaking to Gandhi. Reassured and convinced, shortly after noon, Gandhi accepted a glass of lime juice. As he did, reported the Hindustan Times, the room rang with shouts of Gandhiji Kila Jai. A smile appeared on the face of Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, who had worn an anxious look all these days. Outside, the city of Delhi was jubilant. Its efforts to convince Gandhiji that the era of communal madness in the capital was over had succeeded. The news that the fast had been broken brought thousands of people to Birla House, despite it being a rainy day. Over the past 35 years, Gandhi has gone on fast every other year. The provocations have been various. Sexual transgressions in the ashram, violence committed in the name of nationalism, the oppression of untouchables, and of course, the need for communal harmony. On the 16th of January, 1948, he wrote to a disciple, now living in the Himalaya, who had been at, his, been at his side in several previous fasts, that this latest yanya in Delhi was his greatest fast. Extremist Hindus hated Gandhi for his cooperation with Muslims. When Gandhi recited from the Quran, the Muslim holy book, they would shout, Death to Gandhi! On January 30th, an angry Hindu shot and killed Gandhi. The assassin was upset that Gandhi, rather than promoting modern military power and industrial development for India, threat force and exchange force, was calling for the old superstitious beliefs, like power of the soul, the inner voice, the fast, the prayer and purity of mind, integrative power. Against War While the preparation for and commission of state-sponsored slaughter has shaped much of U.S. history, anti-war voices have been present too. Voices crying in the wilderness for the most part, but on occasion rising to a roar. In fact, principled conscientious opposition to military participation has a history in North America that predates the establishment of the USA. First, though, a field note from anthropology. Many people believe that humans are naturally warlike and have been warring since time immemorial. The human species, Homo sapiens, 
has existed for at least 195,000 years. Yet, archaeological evidence suggests that indiscriminate battlefield killing is a relatively recent human invention, perhaps first appearing around 14,000 years ago in Africa, 10,000 years ago in Europe, and probably not occurring in the Americas until several millennia after that. By comparison, humans have been making jewelry for at least 100,000 years. Cultural evidence shows that a simple foraging band, by far the earliest and longest practiced form of human social organization, typically has no use for warfare. Cavemen were not warriors. However, as human societies became more complex, hierarchical, and wealth accumulative, warfare began to make sense, at least for certain prominent individuals. Eventually, warfare became endemic across much of the planet. Endemic, but never constant, otherwise you wouldn't be reading this. We can surmise that if warfare, like jewelry making, is a human invention, not a biological inevitability, humans can reject and abolish its practice. Maybe give that some thought. We can also infer that as long as there have been war makers, there have been pacifists, meaning people opposed to war. But looking back across the millennia, it can be hard to determine when early opposition to war was principled, against any and all war, and when it was pragmatic, against war in a given situation. For North America, we can clearly identify principled opposition to war after members of three European Christian historic peace churches settled in the 13 British seaboard colonies. The first Quakers, Society of Friends in 1656, Mennonites in 1683, Brethren in 1719. Unlike many Christians then and now, these believers actually adhered to the anti-violence teachings of Jesus of Nazareth as found in the Sermon on the Mount, most notably Resist Not Evil, Matthew 539. This sounds like a call for passivity, refusing to respond to injustice with physical resistance. In practice, non-resistance is often the equivalent of non-violence, meaning active refusal to cooperate with any form of violence, no matter the cost. Indeed, Quakers were among the first British colonists to denounce slavery and to decline on principle to serve in militias. In 1755, John Woolman encouraged fellow Quakers to join him in war tax resistance. He wrote, To refuse the active payment of a tax which our society generally paid was exceedingly disagreeable, but to do a thing contrary to my conscience appeared yet more dreadful. The following year, seven young Quaker men refused to be conscripted into the colonial Virginia militia. Despite being kidnapped by soldiers and threatened with whipping and execution, the men would neither bear arms, work, receive provisions or pay, or do anything that tends in any self-respect to self-defense, as reported by Colonel George Washington. 
A delegation of leading Quakers convinced Washington and the colonial governor not to harm the seven prisoners. During the Independence War, 1775 to 83, many Quakers and other peace church members refused to pay taxes and take up arms. Yes, the USA was founded in enslavement and slaughter, but conscientious objectors, though rarely appearing in celebratory U.S. history telling, were there too. In 1815, shortly after the conclusion of the U.S.-British War of 1812-15, Christian anti-war activists founded the New York Peace Society, Ohio Peace Society, and Massachusetts Peace Society. These small groups affirmed pacifism as a Christian value and called for peace among nations. Please note, the root of pacifism is the Latin pac or pax, meaning peace, not to be confused with pacifism from the Latin pacifus, meaning submissive. In 1828, local and regional peace organizations merged to form the American Peace Society. The general approach of these Christian peace societies was intellectual persuasion through public addresses and dissemination of literature. The first APS pamphlet explained, We hope to increase and promote the practice already begun of submitting national differences to amicable discussion and arbitration, and finally of settling all national controversies by an appeal to reason, as becomes rational creatures, and not by physical force, as is worthy only of brute beasts, and that this shall be done by a congress of Christian nations, whose decrees shall be enforced by public opinions that rule the world. In 1848, after the U.S. War of Conquest in Mexico, the transcendentalist philosopher Henry David Thoreau argued for withdrawing support from a corrupt government. In his essay, Resistance to Civil Government, reprinted as On Civil Disobedience, he suggested that the appropriate response to a government that made war and defended slavery was tax resistance. If a thousand men were not to pay their tax bills this year, that would not be a violent and bloody measure, as it would be to pay them, and enable the state to commit violence and shed innocent blood. This is, this is in fact, the definition of a peaceable revolution, if any such is possible. Of his night in jail for refusing to pay a poll tax, Thoreau observed I did not for a moment feel confined. I saw that the state was half-witted, and I lost all remaining respect for it. Most of all, he was condemning blind obedience. Many men, including soldiers, he observed, serve the state with their bodies but not their consciences, as they hold an undue respect for law. The influence of on-civil disobedience stretched far and wide. In Russia, the great Christian anarchist Leo Tolstoy approvingly cited Thoreau on several occasions, including in an 1896 letter to anarchist Eugen Heinrich Schmidt. Through Tolstoy, 
Thoreau's idea of conscientious non-cooperation spread into Western Europe, where it later informed nonviolent resistors to German occupation during the Second World War. In South Africa, in 1907, Mohandas Gandhi noted that Thoreau's essay was written for all time. Its incisive logic is unanswerable. And later, back in the USA, Martin Luther King Jr., upon reading and rereading the essay, became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Kind of makes you want to reread it, yes? Thoreau died in 1862, just as the Succession War, 1861-65, was evolving into a war against slavery, a political shift that forced a difficult choice upon those U.S. citizens, morally opposed to both slaughter and slavery. The anarchistic abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison abandoned his disavowal of violence and electoral politics to voice support for President Lincoln's strategy of transforming slaves into Union soldiers. APS members disagreed over whether or not to support Union war efforts, and the ostensibly pacifist organization did not take an official position. Principled pacifists may have been few in the early USA, but most citizens had no interest in volunteering to become killers and cannon fodder. As a result, both the USA and rebel CSA governments resorted to conscription, coerced military service, of men during the Succession War. The US Congress amended its conscription law to exempt peace church members, Quakers, Mennonites, brethren, as conscientious objectors. The CS government required religious objectors to pay a fine or hire a substitute. Those unable or morally unwilling to pay went into hiding and or endured imprisonment and torture at the hands of Confederate soldiers. In time of war, the U.S. historical record shows, obedient men typically imagine conscientious disobeyers to be cowards and traitors deserving of abuse. Pop quiz. Please name one prominent U.S. pacifist from the 20th century. You know, someone who opposed war on principle and refused any cooperation with a U.S. war machine. Someone who risked well-being to speak against slaughter, to organize opposition to slaughter, to interfere with national preparations for slaughter. If you're having trouble with that, try naming a prominent anti-war organization established in the USA. Here's a hint. A-U-A-M-W-P-P-F-O-R-W-R-L. Still nothing? Okay, name a famous 20th century US war maker or two. That's easy. Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson... Franklin Roosevelt, Patton, Truman, MacArthur, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, McNamara, Westmoreland, Nixon, Kissinger, Reagan, Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Powell, Schwarzkopf, Clinton. 
If you can easily name famous U.S. war makers, but not a single notable anti-war organization or individual pacifist, you're not alone. In a country where mainstream opinion pushers celebrate and glorify national war-making, anti-warriors get short shrift. When a national military state is at war, dominant voices typically denounce pacifists as unpatriotic, persecute them as treasonous, and deny their humanity, promoting accomplishments. Because the U.S. military state has been at war since 1940, the work of the great pacifists is mostly unknown to U.S. citizens. Let's try to correct that. As previously noted, U.S. historians characterize the early 20th century, 1900 to 1920, as the Progressive Era, in reference to the reform movements of the period. The progressive reforms were a response to political conflicts and social problems created by rapid urban growth and capitalist industrialization in the preceding decades. The standard classroom history lesson on the progressive era emphasizes muckraking journalism, alcohol prohibition, trust busting, and other government regulation of capitalist industry professionalization of municipal management, and changes in the electoral process, especially women's suffrage, right to vote. A thorough teacher might explain how some progressives had conservative motivations, reform to prevent revolution, while progressive progressives took inspiration from the social gospel movement within mainline Protestant churches. Social gospel theology directed Christians to begin building the kingdom of God by addressing societal evils, like the oppressive living and working conditions found in industrial cities. Social justice Christians lobbied for child labor restrictions and injury compensation for workers. They maintained settlement houses to provide an array of free services for industrial laborers. Most famously, Hull House, founded by Jane Addams in Chicago. In my experience, though, history teachers and textbooks typically omit how Adams and other social justice reformers organized and worked against capitalist industrialization's greatest immediate threat to human well-being in that era, the state-sponsored slaughter of 1914-18. In the USA, pacifist meant anyone who opposed U.S. entrance into the European war, likely a majority in 1914, but declining thereafter due to pro-war propaganda. While some Republican and Democratic officials opposed U.S. militarism right up to the 1917 war declaration, It is most empowering, in my opinion, to recall those who worked outside of elected office and were motivated primarily by humanitarian concerns, not economic or political considerations. After all, if the people lead, the leaders will ignore, denounce, ridicule, repress, attempt to co-op, and finally, having exhausted all other options, follow and claim to be leading. 
Fanny Garrison Villard, one of the great progressive reformers, represents the historical connection between early U.S. non-resistance, championed by her father, William Lloyd Garrison, and 20th century anti-war protest. My inherited principles of non-resistance, she wrote, seem as essential to me as the breath of life and paramount to all others. Participation in the abolitionist movement of the early 19th century inspired women to create a women's rights movement. After the abolition of slavery in 1865, women's rights activists focused on the struggle for suffrage. The suffragist movement provided women with the skills and confidence to challenge the political status quo, which they also used when the time came to create an anti-war movement. Less than a month after the European war began, Villard organized a women's peace parade. On August 29, 1914, 1,500 black-clad women marched in silence, drums muffled, no national flags, down Fifth Avenue in New York City. Inspired by labor actions, empowered by urban social work, and mobilized for suffrage, these women bought principled pacifism out of the parlor and into the street. The modernization of anti-militarism. Now we're getting somewhere. The following year brought an outbreak of U.S. pacifism in the New York-Washington, D.C. corridor anyway. Social justice reformers in New York City created the American Union Against Militarism to lobby the president against U.S. entrance into the war and the Anti-Enlistment League, led by Jesse Wallace Hugan, to discourage individual military participation. Hugan, a socialist and social scientist, believed that one way to prevent war was for individuals to refuse to participate. Building on the Peace Parade, a conference of suffragists met in Washington and formed the Women's Peace Party. They adopted an 11-point platform, which prescribed what we now call direct peace. Immediate calling of a convention of neutral nations in the interest of early peace, structural peace, limitation of armaments, and removal of the economic causes of war, and cultural peace, education of youth in the ideals of peace. The preamble to the WPP platform asserted a feminist attitude towards war. As women, we are especially the custodians of the life of the ages. We will not longer consent to its reckless destruction. And this, as human beings and the mother half of humanity, we demand that our right to be consulted in the settlement of question concerning not, o- not alone the life of individuals, but of nations be recognized and respected. Getting Radical Successes and Failures The Civil Rights Movement was the greatest force for positive change in U.S. history, working against the weight of centuries of racist oppression, 
The movement ended Jim Crow segregation, empowered the least powerful, made U.S. society more inclusive and creative, and taught nonviolent resistance to minority groups and oppressed peoples around the world. Fifty years later, though, the United States remains a country of great violence. Residential segregation by race still prevails, and blacks remain politically underrepresented, disproportionately poor, and the preferred target of the police, courts, and prisons. The new Jim Crow. The work of racial justice is far from over, and an understanding of the shortcomings of the movement in the 1960s. Can be instructive for future campaigns. Judging the movement by conventional standards, it was the second American Revolution, a great leap closer to the equality and liberty promised in the 1770s. Judging it by Gandhian principles, it was insufficiently revolutionary, which is to say, insufficiently nonviolent. Scholars typically characterize major political change as reformist or revolutionary. Political revolution is understood to mean the complete overthrow of a power structure or system of government, usually through violent means. Political reform, by comparison, means repairing or altering the current system. As defined by NAACP, CORE, SCLC, and SNCC. Organizing, the civil rights movement was reformist in objective. The general goal was freedom for a despised, oppressed minority, freedom to attend the schools, eat in the restaurants, pursue the careers, live in the neighborhoods, and vote for the candidates of one's own choosing. Black activists were demanding first-class citizenship. Meaning full participation in the existing political, social, and economic institutions. In giving Southern blacks significantly greater access to mainstream institutions, the reform movement was a success. Indeed, it expanded voter rolls far more than did the celebrated violent revolt against British rule in the 1770s. Along the way, though, some activists concluded. That the system itself was incompatible with their goals, especially as their goals changed from personal justice, full inclusion, to a truly just system. For them, revolution was required, the work of true radicals, going beyond fixing the old system to instead creating a new one. In 1966, SNCC Chairman Stokely Carmichael wrote. For racism to die, a totally different America must be born. But as a political revolution, the movement proved largely unsuccessful. The political and economic foundations remained intact. Liberal thinkers tend to evaluate political regimes based on who is permitted participation in decision making, democracy versus autocracy. While Marxist thinkers are concerned more with distribution of wealth, peace theory views both political exclusion and material deprivation as forms of violence, requiring immediate attention. The complete overthrow of a system of government, even through nonviolent means, does not guarantee more democracy or less poverty. True nonviolent revolution, the replacement of a violent system with a peace system, 
requires systematically addressing all three categories of violence: direct, structural, cultural. By definition, this must be done through nonviolent means. Getting to the root of things, radical nonviolence means rejection of all forms of violence. More violence means less revolution. The most obvious concern and greatest area of success for the civil rights movement was direct violence, the active, intentional denial of basic human needs, survival, well-being, identity, freedom. In this case, through Jim Crow segregation and exclusion, lynching, and other forms of terrorism, direct nonviolent action exposed the direct violence, empowered blacks, attracted white sympathy and support, and led to federal action against Jim Crow. Thus, creating numerous new opportunities and avenues for black individuals to reach their full potential. Structural violence. Though less dramatic, presented a greater challenge. A bigoted Southern sheriff is easy to identify, but who's the enemy when you can't find a decent job, or afford decent housing in a prosperous industrial city like Chicago or Detroit? The U.S. political economy greatly favors those with access to material wealth. Generally speaking, it takes money to make money. And greater wealth brings greater influence on public decision making, which is used to secure and increase economic privilege. Nice work if you can get it. The masses are excluded from decision making that profoundly affects their lives, and material poverty obstructs fulfillment of basic needs. The rich stay healthy, the sick stay poor, even if no one means harm. That's structural violence. Civil rights activists found that civil rights alone were not enough. Nor, after centuries of slavery and Jim Crow, had created a black underclass in a system of limited upward mobility. What good is legal access to the best schools and safest neighborhoods if you can't afford the tuition and the mortgage? The Civil Rights Act of 1964 began the process of state action. To overcome structural obstacles to black upward mobility, over the next few decades, affirmative action allowed for emergence of a sizable black middle class—no small achievement—but it didn't change the structures themselves. In sum, the movement reformed the system by dramatically reducing the direct violence of Jim Crow. But did not generate a revolution to counter the structural violence of two-party oligarchy, concentration of wealth, and capitalist exploitation of labor. Of the three points on the violence triangle, cultural violence is arguably the most complex and deeply rooted. Across the few centuries of U.S. history, the dominant ideology has insisted on patriarchy. As a natural condition, the necessity of punishment for sin, the primacy of property rights over human rights, and other received truths that encourage structural and direct violence. For the movement, the most problematic belief system was racial hierarchy, assumptions of white supremacy and black inferiority. Inferiority lay anchored in the subconscious of most U.S. residents. No matter their skin color, by exposing the violence of racism, 
by presenting images of blacks as nonviolent, organized, eloquent, and courageous, and by increasing interracial coexistence and cooperation in schools, workplaces, and public accommodations, the movement contributed to a dramatic decline in personal bigotry. However, centuries-old beliefs do not quickly disappear, and conscious and subconscious assumptions of black inferiority remained. The movement also ran up against belief in the efficacy of threat power in a culture that glorified militarism and mythologized violent men. Despite the success of the movement's nonviolent campaigns, and despite the numerous nonviolent protest movements that followed, most people did not yet fully appreciate integrative power and could not understand how bloodied freedom riders were anything but passive victims. James Lawson, Diane Nash, Septima Clark, and other movement teachers trained hundreds of satyagrahis and taught thousands more to remain nonviolent, but millions clung to their faith in conflict resolution through violent action. Throw punches, hurl bricks, send in the marines, and get yourself a gun, there's a black man in the neighborhood. The reform revolution paradigm says fix or change the system and things will be better. Certainly this was true of the movement's reform efforts. U.S. society became less violent and more democratic. The violence triangle with six directions of causation reminds us that one type of violence, if left unaddressed, will reinforce the other two types. Here again is the diagram with change brought by the civil rights movement. Movement organizers focused primarily on reducing direct violence and hoped their example would be bring a decline in cultural violence. Sympathy would replace bigotry. The power of nonviolence would become apparent. But they mostly left structural violence alone, and this made their achievements tenuous. The structural obstacles that kept blacks disproportionately f poor reinforced assumptions of inherent black inferiority. Structural, cultural. Racist fear of dangerous blacks, coupled with embrace of violent conflict resolution, allowed for passage of draconian laws, the war on drugs, that disproportionately incarcerated and disenfranchised black males, cultural direct. Conflict between peace and inner-city residents contributed to expansion of overwhelmingly black white suburbia, thus extending de facto school segregation and perpetuating the old racist assumptions, direct, st structural, cultural. With six directions of possible causation, reduction of violence is a never-ending process. One rotten apple can spoil the barrel, and the process must be grounded in creative, nonviolent conflict resolution. From this perspective, the movement was a positive development, but incomplete. Accepting that a few decades of nonviolent campaigning will not completely overcome centuries of violence, the questions remain where did the movement fall short of nonviolent principles? How did it fail to address all points on the violence triangle? What might it have done differently? 
Missed Opportunity. On August 28, 1963, an estimated 250,000 people from across the country converged on Washington, D.C. to demonstrate their support for the civil rights movement. They filled the National Mall and listened politely to a slate of singers and speakers that peaked with Martin Luther King Jr.'s iconic I Have a Dream speech. Movement leaders then met with President Kennedy in the White House to discuss his proposed civil rights bill. The March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, as this celebrated event was named, can be understood as a high point and culmination, the day a regional movement went national and mainstream. An enormous monument to King now stands near the mall between the Lincoln and Jefferson memorials, a testament to his significance as a truly national leader. Approximately one-third of the march attendees were white, a display of racial accord perhaps unprecedented in U.S. history, and organizers had arranged for the presence of well-known entertainment celebrities. Television networks broadcast the program live, the first time viewers could experience a King speech in its entirety. The message of King's speech and the entire event was of racial harmony as a national value, a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. Less than eight years after the arrest of Rosa Parks had sparked the Montgomery bus boycott, she was standing center stage in the national capital, along with Fred Shuttlesworth, Bernice Johnson, John Lewis, and others who, in preceding years, had been brutalized for sitting or walking in the wrong places in southern cities. Then evening came, and they all went home. A quick departure was not the original plan, and there may be value in pondering what might have been. In the weeks after the Children's March, protests had pervaded the country. People were on the move in the summer of 63, and Kennedy felt he must act to prevent more Birminghams. Images of white policemen assaulting nonviolent black children reflected poorly on the Kennedy administration and were perfect for use by Soviet propagandists as evidence of capitalist immorality. Kennedy weighed stifling the protests versus ceding to movement demands for stronger federal action against Jim Crow. In other words, act to decrease or increase civil rights. Never an easy choice for a U.S. president. He considered enacting a reasonable limitation of the right to demonstrate, but decided instead to announce support for civil rights legislation. He wasn't ceding much, though, because he expected a filibuster by Southern Democrats to block passage of any bill that outlawed segregation. Indeed, two months later, to reassure Southern whites that the administration wasn't entirely in the desegregationist camp, Attorney General Robert Kennedy announced federal criminal indictments against the Albany Nine for picketing a white-owned grocery store. The president's real intent was to redirect the movement's energy into conventional politics. He hoped his televised announcement would bring calm and obviate more protests while the legislative process dragged along. 
Put another way, Kennedy was calling for reforms to preempt possible demands for revolution. Civil rights leaders, though, with a burgeoning movement behind them, were not settling for noble gestures and political delay. We are on a breakthrough and need a mass protest, King told his advisors. We are ready to go on a national level with our protests. They discussed taking the Birmingham strategy to Washington, knowing that A. Philip Randolph's Negro American Labor Council was already planning a similar action. They would recruit thousands of volunteers to set up an encampment, hold marches, and stage sit-ins in the halls of government, essentially taking over the city until Congress passed the law. Imagine if the SCLC, NALC, SNCC, and CORE had gone forward with such an open-ended occupation, if they had organized more than enough participants to fill the district's jails, thus neutralizing the threat of mass arrests. Imagine James Lawson guiding the strategy sessions, Bayard Rustin working out the logistics, Bob Moses and Septima Clark training volunteers, King and James Bevel preaching in nightly mass meetings, Bernice Johnson leading the singing, John Lewis and Bernard Lafayette leading carefully selected satigrahis to occupy congressional offices and absorb police violence, and Diane Nash gracefully confronting the president. Imagine a nonviolent dream team rather than just, I have a dream. Then consider two possible outcomes. First, Congress might concede the campaign's demands and pass robust civil rights legislation, confirming for observers a valuable lesson in democracy, mass, sustained, nonviolent action, more so than voting or letter writing, is the way for those without great wealth to influence federal lawmakers. If you want real change, nonviolently overwhelm the Capitol. Secondly, echoing the 1932 attack on the bonus marchers, federal officials might order police and military forces to remove the protesters and clear the streets, possibly producing a display of state-sanctioned violence against nonviolent citizens that would make Birmingham's police dogs and fire hoses seem tame by comparison. In this case, the nationally televised lesson would be that the federal government is part of the problem, an obstacle to civil rights, and thus reform might be insufficient. If you want real change, get rid of the capital. So, either empowerment of the masses or destruction of the myth of a genuinely de democratic system, possibly leading to empowerment of the masses. For the Kennedy brothers, rich, white, northeastern, and seated atop the polit political class, neither option was appealing. The Kennedys may not have fully understood integrative power and moral jujitsu, but they knew that a nonviolent occupation of Washington would force them to take a stand. In typical Cold War rhetoric, they claimed to represent moral decency and seemed to believe their claims, but had struggled mightily behind the scenes with movement leaders and Southern governors, 
negotiating, manipulating, threatening, to avoid appearing in full support of the civil rights activists in their efforts against state-sanctioned violence in the Deep South. Now, they might have to choose between a nonviolent movement that held the high, moral high ground and the political structure that generated their wealth and power. They couldn't have it both ways anymore, not if nonviolent intervention targeted the entire Washington ruling class rather than just the Southern bigots. Forced to choose, the Kennedys most likely would have defended class interest, clear the streets, and the violent nature of the underlying political structures would have been revealed in the direct violence of government thuggery. The Kennedy administration avoided that dilemma by nipping occupation plans in the bud. In late June, the president met with King, Lewis, Randolph, and other movement leaders and presented himself as courageously, as courageously committed to passing legislation. I may lose the next election because of this. I don't care. He and his vice president insisted that traditional Capitol Hill deal-making was the only way to get the law passed, and they wanted their guests to support lobbying efforts. Again, the Kennedy strategy was to channel movement energy away from potentially revolutionary nonviolence and into conventional politics. Just as President Roosevelt in 1941 asked Randolph to cancel the first planned March on Washington, Kennedy argued against the movement coming to town. Street demonstrations, he assumed, would turn violent and be counterproductive. We want success in the Congress, not a big show on the Capitol. Employing a carrot-and-stick approach, the president promised financial support to cooperative leaders and threatened to arrest potential occupiers before they reached the city. The movement representatives, aside from NAACP chief Roy Wilkins, were committed to an event in Washington. They couldn't afford not to build on the Birmingham momentum, but struck a compromise. Instead of protests, they would hold a one-day rally that, by increasing national support, would serve to lobby Congress, but would not pressure or threaten anyone. There is an old saw claiming that the violent rhetoric of Malcolm X and other black nationalists forced government officials to cooperate, cooperate with movement moderates like King. But in fact, just as German generals knew how to respond to violent resistance during World War II, government officials knew how to deal with violent blacks. They worked with moderates because radical nonviolence confounded and unsettled them even more. In convincing movement leaders not to occupy Washington, Kennedy had forestalled revolutionary action by promising support for reforms. The march on Washington wouldn't be nonviolent intervention. It would barely be a march. In 1930, Mohandas Gandhi went to the beach and gathered sun-baked salt in violation of the British monopoly on salt production in India. By itself, a simple act of civil disobedience, but Gandhi first organized a journey by foot. He informed the British Viceroy of his plans, then set out with 80 trained satyagrahis from his ashram on a 240-mile trek to the sea. 
Along the way, he stopped in villages to explain his non-cooperation campaign, to denounce British colonial rule, and to call on local officials to resign their collaborationist posts. Thousands of volunteers joined the Satyagrahis. National journalists reported on their progress, and the suspense grew. When would they arrive at the coast? Would they really defy the law? Would the British try to stop them? Years earlier in South Africa, Gandhi had led Indian marchers in violation of racist border restrictions. A nonviolent march, he understood, can be powerful. First, there is the spectacle of it, the drama, as a large number of people walk knowingly into a dangerous situation. A march draws attention to a cause, attracts an audience along the route, and displays the courage and commitment of the marchers. Second, a march can be an act of nonviolent resistance and intervention, going where you are not wanted or allowed. Marchers are essentially daring the opposition to stop them, to show their violence in broad daylight. Third, a march symbolizes moving forward, delivering a message, and in a world of violent armies, is readily understood as the taking of territory. Fourth, an extended march with participants living together, sharing the hardships of life on the road, creates community, builds commitment, and attracts more volunteers. Marchers find themselves with time to think about what they are doing and why. If they stick it out, they gain a greater sense of purpose, belonging, and investment in the cause. All of this just by going for a long walk. The salt march started with eighty, grew into the thousands, and set off a movement of illegal salt production in India. There have been a few actual protest marches to Washington, notably Coxey's Army, eighteen ninety four, and Cox's Army, nineteen thirty two. But sometime in the early twentieth century, a march on Washington came to mean a large political demonstration that drew participants from across the country. No matter how they made the trip, as such, the 1963 march on Washington did not fully reap the benefits of extended collective overland travel at walking pace. Individuals and small groups undertook remarkable pilgrimages by train and bus, even on roller skates and by bicycle, and there was a collective and somewhat chaotic procession of less than a mile, a march in Washington, ending at the Jefferson Memorial. On the whole, though the march was less an exercise in community building and nonviolent resistance, more a political rally and media event, the gathering certainly had power. It influenced many people, but as a march, it was more symbolic than real. The dramatic build and taking of territory had come in sit-ins, freedom rides, and illegal street processions in the Deep South, as nonviolent intervention. The Children's March shared important characteristics with the Gandhi-led march. The rally in the national capital was the symbolic arrival. It was a great day, but didn't convince Congress to pass President Kennedy's civil rights bill. The opposition from Southern senators was too strong. In November, though Kennedy was assassinated, and his presidential successor Lyndon Johnson. Told Congress that the best way to honor Kennedy's memory was with the earliest possible passage of the Civil Rights Bill 
for which he fought so long. Kennedy was handsome, charming, rich, eloquent, powerful, and white, the type of personage celebrated in U.S. culture. Personage. A great many people considered his death, like that of his former lover Marilyn Monroe, an enormous tragedy. In exaggerating Kennedy's support for the movement, John Johnson was harnessing the integrative power of Kennedy's death to the proposed legislation. The following spring, with the NALC threatening a nationwide one-day labor strike to protest congressional inaction, Northern Republicans finally joined Northern Democrats to stop the Southern Democrats' filibuster and pass the bill. It seems that Kennedy's death aided the movement more than Kennedy ever did while in office. Kennedy is still remembered as a civil rights president, but his influential opposition to direct nonviolent action had convinced organizers to make the March on Washington a one-day non-confrontational affair and thus a missed opportunity, as King eventually acknowledged.